Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Well, how about them apples? Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, and with me, as usual, is my friend Matthew. I don't use your last name. What do you think of that? That's fine. That's fine? I'm, I'm, I'm like Madonna or Cher. Yeah, you're just Matthew. Just Matthew. And your dog is just Steve. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm glad you came back again this week. No problem. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense, and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. No calories. Oh, gosh, if only. I know. <laughs> On September 22, 2015, in Renfrew County, Ontario, 66-year-old Carol Culleton was murdered in her home by her one-time handyman. The man who'd become obsessed with the recent widow before killing her, then stole Culleton's car and drove to the home of an ex-girlfriend, Anastasia Kuzik, 36. There, he shot Anastasia with the shotgun as her sister fled the home. The killer was not done settling the scores he had cooked up in his head, and then he drove to the home of another ex-girlfriend, Natalie Warmerdam, 48. As Natalie's son ran from their home, he heard the gunshot that ended his mother's life. The killer, Basil Borutsky, 58, a former millwright, then fled, and a brief manhunt ensued that ended in Borutsky being taken into police custody. Later on, in a five-hour-long taped police interview, the killer admitted to what he'd done, laying the blame for his spree squarely on his victims. This is Dark Poutine 180, Renfrew County Rampage, Carol Culleton, Anastasia Kuzik, and Natalie Warmerdam. This story has been referred to in the press as one of the most depraved cases of intimate partner violence in Canada's history up to that point. Arguably, it is only eclipsed by the rampage shootings in Nova Scotia in April of 2020, perpetrated by a denturist whose spree also kicked off with an incident of domestic violence. In that case, the gunman was neutralized by police as he pumped gas at a big stop. 
so we can only speculate on his motivations, as he is not around to confirm anything. In this case, however, Basil Barutsky is very much alive and was willing to talk about his crimes, as we will later hear. Did this come out of nowhere? No. Barutsky had been in trouble with the law many times for his violence, in particular his violence against his former wife, girlfriends, domestic partners, and other women. But the system failed to stop him before he took three innocent lives and left loved ones asking why. Time and time again, Barutsky had slithered through the cracks, and the story that follows here had me both scratching my head and seething as I dug deeper and deeper. It seems to highlight the need for an overhaul in the way Canadian courts deal with offenders like Basil Barutsky. Wilno, Ontario, a rural community in the Ottawa Valley, as with many of her stories, is not the kind of place where triple homicides take place regularly. It is exceedingly rare. According to Wilno.com, an unofficial website on the township, quote, There is a saying in Wilno, What you don't know, you will know when you visit Wilno. Folks visiting Wilno are always intrigued when they enter the village from the east and they see the magnificent church at the top of the Wilno Hills. Upon entering the village from the west, they notice an interesting village with a lot of history. Historically, Wilno was built by two Slavic groups from Europe. The Kashubs arrived in Canada in 1858 from their homeland, Kashubia, which at the time of immigration was under Prussian-slash-German rule. The Polish, the Polish arrived in Canada in the early 1860s. Most of the Polish people who came to Wilno in the 1860s came from the Galatian area of Poland, which was under Austrian rule. Wilno is recognized throughout the world as Canada's first Kashubian settlement in 1858 and Canada's first Polish settlement in 1864. End quote. Basil Barutsky's family has deep roots in Renfrew County. The Fifth Estate noted that there's a Barutsky Road, we presume to be named after one of Basil's ancestors. Basil Barutsky's classmates remembered him as being a bully in school. He had a chip on his shoulder. One of them told CBC's Fifth Estate that he had talked to others who knew Basil, and they knew that, quote, one day Basil was going to get himself into some trouble, end quote. It didn't take long after high school until Basil found himself in front of a judge. In 1977, 20-year-old Basil Barutsky was convicted of assault causing bodily harm for an incident near Kitchener, Ontario. In 1982, Basil Barutsky became involved with Marianne Mask, already the mother of a daughter from a prior relationship. Over the span of 26 years, Barutsky and Marianne would have two more children of their own in an on-again, off-again relationship fraught with, according to Marianne, alcohol-fueled violence at Basil's hands. In 1985, Marianne Mask accused Basil Barutsky of domestic assault. Barutsky was acquitted of the charges and was later awarded $20,000 to cover his legal costs. The couple then reconciled. In 1989, Marianne and Basil moved to Round Lake Centre, Ontario, where Basil was working at a millwright for Atomic Energy of Canada Limited. It was a decent job and the money was good, but things continued to be volatile behind closed doors. In 1993, Marianne and Basil separated after Marianne accused him of assaulting her again, and charges were later pressed. The next spring, in May of 1994, Basil was injured in a car wreck and his back was hurt so badly he was left on disability afterward. The couple reconciled again and were married in June. Marianne became pregnant within a month and the domestic assault charges were dropped against Basil in August. 
The wedded bliss didn't last long, and that December, the Barutskys separated again, with Marianne halfway through her pregnancy with Barutsky's first daughter. Marianne later accounted that her return to Barutsky came under duress. From court documents, quote, Marianne states that Basil destroyed her spirit by relentless threats and abuse. She explained the sequence after the December 1993 charges. She states that he stalked her, constantly pestered her to recant, insisted that it did not happen, told her that no one would believe her in having regard to the acquittal in Kitchener, that he would take the girls from her and she would never see them again. She says she believed he would succeed and capitulated. End quote. Regardless of their previous history, in 1999, Basil and Marianne were back together. They gave it another go, but things eventually spun the same way as they always did. In 2008, after another alleged assault, Marianne left Basil Borutsky for the last time. They'd had another daughter by then. Marianne was saying she was in fear of her life. She was terrified of Basil. She obtained a court order requiring Basil to stay away from her for a year. Basil was livid and protested his innocence to anyone who would listen, claiming that Marianne had used the system against him. Some people believed him. He could be a convincing guy. Basil Barutsky had numerous negative interactions with police and others throughout his life, leading up to the murders he would become so infamous for. He even took to putting up signs around his property warning people, including Marianne and certain police officers, to stay away. One New Year's Eve, Basil Barutsky was pulled over for suspected drunk driving. Basil's attitude with police was confrontational and he refused to provide a sample of his breath when requested, a criminal offense in Canada. On January 1st, 2010, Basil Barutsky was charged for that. At his trial in October of that year, in what would become a trend for Basil, he decided to represent himself. We've heard this proverb many times. An example comes from The Flowers of Wit or Choice Collection of Bon Mots by Henry Kett in 1814. It goes, I hesitate not to pronounce that every man who is his own lawyer has a fool for a client, end quote. Of course, Barutsky was convicted. Quote, I don't believe much of anything that he said, the judge told the court at sentencing. He has made ridiculous, unsubstantiated claims of police abuse, end quote. That same year, Barutsky was also charged with criminal harassment of an unnamed woman between January and February. In August of 2010, the day before the trial, for reasons not provided publicly, the Crown stayed the charges against Basil Barutsky. Natalie Warmerdam and her husband Frank moved to Redenfrew County in 2005 with their son and daughter. The couple had both grown up in rural surroundings, Natalie nearby in Redenfrew County, and both were looking forward to a simpler life and a different kind of life for their kids. Natalie had transitioned from her gig as a technical writer in the city to a more rewarding career as a mobile palliative care nurse calling in to see that terminally ill patients were comfortable in their final days. After Natalie and Frank broke up in 2010, she met Basil Barutsky during the time that she was tending to Barutsky's dying father. He seemed like a nice guy at first. He was attentive, kind, and compassionate. Still hurting from her recent separation from Frank, Natalie and Basil Barutsky were living together soon after they first hooked up. Basil had moved into Natalie's two-story log home with Natalie and her kids. It seemed awfully fast to some of Natalie's friends and family. They were probably right. Things began to go sideways quickly as Basil's mood darkened during the divorce from Marianne and other legal entanglements. 
According to reports, this is when Basil began taking his anger out on Natalie and her family. During this time, the home that Borutsky had shared with his wife burned to the ground on January 21, 2011. Then vacant, the house was an asset whose ownership was hotly debated between the divorcing couple and it was looking like it might go to Marianne. Months before the fire, Basil had cancelled the insurance on the home without Marianne's knowledge, so when it was destroyed, the property value was significantly less than had the home remained. Again, representing himself in May 2011, Basil appealed his failure to provide a breath sample conviction. His appeal was dismissed a month later. That same month, Basil was once again charged with alleged assaults and death threats against Marianne that she was claiming happened during the last year of their marriage. Basil was also charged with an alleged assault against yet another woman that July. Those charges were also stayed by the Crown in October. Once again, when the court proceedings for Borutsky's divorce began, in a narcissistic move, Basil decided to represent himself. Things did not go well. Marianne had suffered multiple serious health problems throughout the years of her marriage to Basil, not caused by him. However, she needed lots of support from her husband, but claimed she was physically and emotionally abused instead. From the court's decision in Borutsky v. Borutsky, quote, Basil vehemently denies having ever assaulted Marianne. He asserts that she is vindictive and manipulates the justice system by making false charges. He believes she suffers from mental health issues that disable her from effective parenting, from responsible financial management, and that distort her reality, end quote. Further on, Basil's incompetence as his own lawyer shone a bright light on things. Although Basil called on his daughters to testify in his favor, their testimony hurt his narrative of the hard-done-by-completely-innocent man. From Borutsky versus Borutsky, quote, They verified their mother's version of dysfunction in the marriage and confirmed that Basil was violent, easily agitated, and tyrannical toward his family members. The eldest daughter testified to having vivid memory of Basil's violence toward Marianne, dating back to the early years in a vehicle that included hair-pulling, slapping, and an attempt to push Marianne from the moving car. She recalls she was horrified, as was a younger daughter who was a baby, age three at the time. The older girl confirmed the assault in 1993 and that she was the one who called 911. The younger girl confirmed the observation that her mother was bloodied and dirty on her arrival home in August 2008 when the parties finally separated. Basil states those injuries were self-inflicted. End quote. Basil lost big. Among other judgments, he was ordered to pay Marianne an equalization payment in the amount of $92,972. Again, he was livid. Smarting from his loss in the divorce, things soured even further with Natalie Warmadim, even though she'd tried to help him through all of his issues, both with the law and during the divorce. Things boiled over again on July 27, 2012. After another violent outburst, Basil Borutsky was charged with assaulting Natalie Warmerdam, threatening to skin her son, Adrian, threatening to kill the family dog, threatening to kill his ex-wife, mischief to property, and breaching orders. On the day of his arrest, on September 5, 2012, Borutsky assaulted one of the arresting police officers and later urinated on the wall and carpet of the cell in which he was being held. He was charged for those offenses as well. In return for a lighter sentence, Borutsky pleaded guilty to the lesser charges, and the charges of assault on Natalie and threats against Marianne's life were stayed. 
In her victim impact statement at Basil's sentencing, Natalie Warmadam said Barutsky's, quote, alcohol-fueled rages left me to question myself, my self-worth, and my judgment. I fear Basil Barutsky and feel the lives of me and my children will be at risk when he gets out of jail, end quote. He was sentenced to 150 days behind bars with a two-year probation order and a ban of 10 years from owning firearms. Basil had already served 117 of those days, and so he spent only 33 more days in jail. He was released on January 8, 2013. Barutsky was also ordered to attend the Living Without Violence Partner Assault Response Program in Eganville, but he never fulfilled that obligation. Natalie's daughter, Valerie, told CBC reporters that Natalie was terrified of Basil, she began to undertake preemptive self-defense behaviors to protect herself in case Basil surprised her when she was out on her rounds, taking care of patients or otherwise engaged in day-to-day activities. As well as backing into parking spots to make a quick escape, she also began carrying a tactical pen in her purse. A tactical pen still will work as a writing implement, but if used correctly during an attack, it can be used as a weapon to injure an assailant. Natalie had been so terrified by Barutsky that she began sleeping with a panic button at her side connected directly to the police and a shotgun underneath her bed. Anastasia Kuzik was a server at the Wilno Tavern, an award-winning equestrian rider, and a real estate agent in the area. She met Basil Barutsky sometime in 2001 at the tavern, where they became friendly. She eventually showed him some properties she thought he might be interested in and listed Basil's father's home for sale. For a few months, she and her partner had rented the property that eventually burned down. She kept in touch and visited Barutsky for drinks on several occasions. Anastasia had wondered why her friend Basil Barutsky had stopped calling in late 2012, but found out why when he called her soon after his release in January of 2013. Basil had been in jail, accused of things which, according to him, had not happened. It was also sometime in 2013 that Barutsky met the recently widowed Carol Culleton, at the Wilno Tavern. She owned a cottage in Renfrew County, only living there recreationally. Her main residence was in North Gower, a community south of Ottawa and a two-hour drive away from Renfrew. As was Basil's pattern, he was kind and friendly at first. They started seeing each other in the summer. While he was first dating Carol Culleton, Basil was living alone in a farmhouse that abutted a scrapyard. Basil discovered a shotgun in the floorboards of an abandoned motorhome there. He was able to scavenge live shotgun shells as well. As he was prohibited from owning firearms, he wrapped a gun and ammo in a garbage bag and stashed them in some bushes near a road. He didn't want to lose the gun in a surprise visit by the cops or a probation officer. This was the weapon he would later use in the murders of the two of his three victims. Carol and Basil's relationship cooled, as he became more heavily involved with Anastasia Kuzik. Anastasia had been having trouble in her domestic partnership, and it was ending. She would later say that Basil was kind and supportive during the transition. Basil ended up staying at Anastasia's home for a time to protect and support her. She was afraid of her ex and feeling particularly vulnerable and depressed. Kuzik later said that one night while the pair were drinking together, things went, quote, too far and their relationship went to a place Anastasia was not comfortable with later. When she told Barutsky about her concerns, he turned on her, insisting that she couldn't go backward, that she had to be positive and move forward. This was a turning point for Basil and Anastasia. Although he later denied ever having a sexual relationship with her, 
saying he was more of a father figure to her, it's also when the alleged abuse began. After incidents on December 30th, 2013, and January 23rd, 2014, Borutsky was charged with assaulting Kuzik, trying to choke her, stealing her mother's car, breach of probation, and burning her antique rocking horse. In court, Anastasia Kuzik testified that Basil shared a dream that he'd had about killing Natalie Warmerdam. She said, quote, He told me that he had a dream that he was holding Natalie, one of his exes, under the water and killing her, that he was drowning her. He said that it was other women and that I'd taken the beatings for the others. End quote. Kuzik was terrified that Basil would actually go through with it at some point and kill someone. Borutsky pleaded guilty to some of the lesser charges, but was also tried and found guilty of overcoming resistance by attempting to choke, suffocate, or strangle, assault, and mischief under $5,000 for burning Kuzik's childhood heirlooms. Crown attorneys were now becoming concerned with the increasing frequency and intensity of Basil Borutsky's offenses. He didn't seem to give a shit about court orders, like that of the aforementioned domestic assault prevention course he'd refused to attend. They wanted Basil to spend more time behind bars. He'd already been in 233 days before his sentencing, but he would only serve another 160 days in custody. Basil was released just after Christmas on December 27, 2014, still under a two-year probation order. He'd breached that in horrendous fashion. And we'll take a break right here. And we're back. Uh, what are your thoughts so far on Mr. Barutsky, Matthew? So we started, what was it, 1977? 1977 was his first conviction. And now we're in like 2014? Yeah, December 2014. Yeah, so... So this guy has been at it for over 20-something years. Yep, almost and, 30. And he's still, mm-hmm. like, not permanently away from us. Right. He's... Uh, this guy, there's nothing likable about him. No, nothing at all. Nope. nope. Like, I'm, you, you know me, I try to look for the good in people. I just right. can't find it. Right. <laughs> I talk about it further into the, into the script, yeah. uh, especially when we get into the interview part. Yeah. Uh, but people did say, well, he was a nice guy. He helped me out and did all kinds of things for me. And so, I mean, I'm talking about one aspect of this guy's life when mm. I'm, when I'm giving this, but I'm not interested in the good stuff that he did. Yeah. I'm not interested if he, I'm sure he is. If he helped hang wallpaper or something. Right. right? Exactly. Well, I helped somebody hang their wallpaper. Fuck off you dick. It's like some, it's like a a narcissist who was in my life helped me years before. Mm. And then when he started doing some really bad shit, really bad shit, and I called him on it, he was like, well, you owe me because I helped you with that thing. 10 years ago. Oh dear. Yeah. Oh dear. And you know, how many women did he, this guy like create havoc for? Uh, A lot. Right. And you know, I'm just kind of like, well, I kind of know what happens because you started out with what what, what happened. And these women were completely failed by courts Mm -hmm. and by the community probably. Yeah. Yeah. After getting out of jail again, Basil Borutsky was down on his luck and had to move into an apartment in a community housing complex in June of 2015. 
Still drinking, he ran into Carol Culloden at the tavern and attempted to rekindle what had been a brief relationship. She took him up on his offers to do some odd jobs around the cottage she was planning to sell before her retirement. From the Ottawa Citizen, quote, Carol Culloden's friends warn her of red flags. He begins to do unwanted work around the cottage, building a deck without asking and showing up unexpectedly by a car or boat. He once drives two hours to Culleton's North Gower home after lifting the address from a Christmas card where he greets Culleton in her driveway uninvited and unwanted. One friend warns her, Carol, you've got a stalker, end quote. Carol was also unimpressed with the speed of Barutsky's work. She began to feel uncomfortable having him around. He seemed fixated on her and she wanted him to finish up, but every deadline was pushed into the future for one arbitrary reason or another. Carol began seeing another man. Barutsky was jealous, calling Carol a liar and claiming she was hiding things from him. As they weren't in a relationship, Carol was not obliged to tell Basil anything at all, but he saw it differently. Over Labor Day weekend, Barutsky, Carol, and one of her friends were having a few drinks. Feeling uninhibited at some point during the evening, Carol sat on Barutsky's knee. But when she gently rebuked later advances, Basil accused her of sending mixed messages. In a petulant rage, Barutsky tore up a flower bed he'd planted outside Carol Culleton's cottage. Carol snapped photos of the damage to show her friends. Basil wouldn't leave Carol alone. He called and texted day and night. In the weeks and days leading up to her murder, Barutsky would send Carol Culleton more than a hundred text messages, to which she replied only a handful of times. One ominous text sent between September 8th and 9th read, quote, if you do the negative thing and continue in denial, blame me, negative, things will happen. It won't be a snowball of good things, but a forest fire of bad things. More gossip, more untruths, more lies to hide the lies. Maybe police, courts, nothing good for me, for you, for anyone. End quote. Carol Culloden retired on September 19, 2015. Wanting to escape the pressures of Basil Barutsky's pursuit of her, she was driven back into the comforting arms of another man who she spent the night with that night at her house after a bit of retirement celebration with pals. Basil was still sending text after text, most of which, of course, went unanswered. From CBC, messages from Basil's number read, quote, When you can, I'm worried shit happens, and two short calls, 41 seconds, just over a minute, are made to Culleton's phone number. Then more texts, Hi, please text me, worried, and, Carol, I'm really, really worried about you. The soulmate connection or whatever is telling me something's wrong. I feel like I should call the Kempville police and inquire. Just text and say, all good. Please, buddy. My nerves are on edge. Culleton's number responds later. Good morning. All good. Had lots of fun. End quote. Basil continued to text. Finally, on the morning of September 20th, 2015, Carol Culleton had had enough. She messaged Basil's phone. Thanks, my friend and I are back together. Please don't bother me, end quote. Basil replied, quote, which friend? What are you talking about? Is that why I had such a bad gut feeling? Did booze cloud your judgment? Did you go to a false friend again? And don't run away, face the problem, you need to talk to me. You owe me that much, please, end quote. Carol Culleton's final reply to him was, please stop. Over the next day, Basil's torrent of text messages continued and all went unanswered. Basil professed his love for Carol, telling her that he felt she used him to fix up her place and then ditched him. 
The last texts Basil sent to Carol were around 6 p.m. on the night before he would murder her. He wrote, quote, You are a cruel and vindictive, self-centered human being. You have no heart and no conscience. You hooked me real good. I believed you and in you. You got me for about $10,000 in labor and another two or 3000 in cash I spent on you and your cottage. Congratulations. I will never text or talk to you again. Be happy. Karma will pay you for your heartless ways. Bye. I wish I'd never met you. He continued, I will endure the betrayal of yet another false friend. I will fill everyone else in on the true you. Karma will take over. End quote. <laughs> you know, it's before social media and texting, right? Yeah. Like we could only, you know, hear the stories from women. When you read, mm-hmm. when you can read what people like this are writing. Yeah. It's like a casebook abuser. Um, you know, apologies, then veiled threats, and trying to be sweet, and then telling them they're the problem, then overt threats. Yep. You can see right through it. Totally. Yeah, he's a... He's a pathetic little man. He really is. He's like a mewling little thing. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to be a big thing. He's very... Well, he's a big thing in his own mind. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, is the most important person on the planet in his own mind. God. What is there? He's calling other people self-centered. Like, isn't that kind of the way that it always goes? And he doesn't know what karma is. No. Well, I think he has a sort of a twisted view of karma. Anybody who upsets him, karma will take over. Oh, God. Barutsky left his apartment at 7.36 a.m. on September 22, 2015. According to CBC, the killer was wearing a camouflage hat and pants as if he were going hunting. He had with him the shotgun and shells that he'd found. He put his deadly cargo into a car that he'd borrowed from a neighbor who'd loaned it to him, despite Basil's not having a driver's license after his refusal to blow charges. Basil drove toward the cottage that Carol Culleton owned at 670 Kamaniskeg Lake Road near Combermere, Ontario. The gas light was on in the car as he was driving. Barutsky drove to a rural gas station closest to Carol's, but found it closed. He could not refill the gas tank, so he drove the car to Carol's place and abandoned it there. Carol, home alone at the time, saw Barutsky coming onto the property and went out to meet him. He was in a rage, and she wisely turned on her heel and raced back inside and locked the door. Basil smashed the window, unlocked the door, and entered the cottage. Basil advanced on Carol Culleton, who was protesting the entire time. Basil picked up a coil of coaxial cable laying nearby. He hit Carol with it first and then wrapped it around her head and neck and strangled her until she stopped breathing. After he had killed Carol Culleton, Basil smoked a cigarette, leaving a DNA-laden butt in the sink. He then took Carol's cell phone and her car keys and drove off in Carol's car, a Mazda 3, leaving the other car behind and continued on his mission to exact his sick justice on the other people that he felt had wronged him unforgivably. Next, Basil drove the 30 kilometers west to Anastasia Kuzik's home at 37 Sisiper Road in Wilno. According to CBC News, quote, Eva Kuzik was changing sheets at her sister's house in Wilno that morning, sometime between 8 and 9 a.m. when she heard her little sister scream at the top of her lungs. Eva raced downstairs to find her sister on the floor hiding behind her kitchen island and noticed a figure ducking out of sight by the door. Anastasia whispered, It's Basil. 
Eva saw the man on the porch, raised the gun, and she fled for her life. Hearing the fatal shotgun blast that took her sister's life behind her as she ran, Eva then called 911. Basil's last murderous stop would be 30 kilometers further west at a 3594 Foymont Road in Eganville. This was Natalie Warmerdam's home. CBC reporter Gillian Findlay, who later drove the routes taken by Basil Barutsky on the day of the murders, mentioned how far it felt as she drove the rural roads, that there had to be a true rage in Basil's heart for him to maintain that amount of anger for the time it took for each leg of the drive. Natalie's son Adrian was lying on the couch when he heard his mom screaming in the kitchen. She ran into the living room with Basil Barutsky pursuing her and aiming his shotgun at her. Adrian, like Anastasia's sister, ran out of the house and he had no shoes on. Also mirroring Eva's experience, he heard the shotgun blast that killed his mother as he ran. He hid in some bushes nearby and called 911, hiding for the next hour and a half until police discovered him there. Baritsky had also driven 80 kilometers to White Lake intent, intent on killing another man he'd felt had wronged him, but when the man was not at work, Baritsky left. By this time, an OPP manhunt was in full swing. Everyone was on the lookout for Basil Barutsky, who had headed back east. Police had since warned Marianne about the possibility of a dangerous run-in with Basil that morning, and she was in hiding as cops prepared to intercept him. They thought, possibly, back in Ottawa. From an Ottawa Citizen timeline of the day of the murders, quote, Barutsky pulled into a hydro right-of-way and stashed Culleton's car near a family hunt camp at 3735 Becks Road in Kinburn and began writing in a notebook. I hate money, one entry began. Police had made contact with Arthur Borutsky and escorted the suspect's brother to a mobile command unit at the corner of Becks Road and Kinburn Side Road. With a police negotiator at his side, Bunker, the brother, continued to exchange texts with Borutsky, who texted his brother, Yes, I did it. The guilty have paid. Justice finally. I'm tired. With Arthur's help, police convinced Basil Baruski to give himself up around 2 p.m. Again, from the Ottawa Citizen, quote, Baruski walked out into an adjoining field, unarmed, as his brother relayed police instructions by text. Hands up, no gun. The tactical unit broke into an L ambush formation as one team approached the suspect head-on with a canine unit and officers in support, while a second team emerged from the bush line on Baruski's flank. Do you want to know where the gun is, he says, as he's arrested? Police followed his directions and found the rusted old shotgun lying in the long grass next to a sandwich bag full of shells and a note impaled on a branch. It read, I have no gun. Don't murder me. I give up. End quote. Barutsky still had his PAL, or firearms acquisition license, in his pocket at the time of his arrest. That evening, members of the devastated communities held a vigil for Borutsky's victims, Carol Culleton, 66, Anastasia Kuzik, 36, and Natalie Warmerdam, 48. The question on everyone's lips was why? Basil himself will give some insight here, albeit from his demented point of view. The officer assigned to question Basil Borutsky was Detective Sergeant Kaylee O'Neill of the OPP Behavioral Sciences Unit. Any true crime fan worth their salt were recognized behavioral science unit as a term made famous by FBI supervisory special agents Johnny Douglas and Robert Ressler, who compiled a centralized database on serial offenders beginning in the mid-1970s. Their goal was to better understand predators' motives, how they planned and prepared for their crimes, how they carried them out, 
and their behavior afterward, creating profiles and categorizing the worst of the worst. Among other duties, as well as being responsible to profile yet uncaptured suspects or unsubs, OPP's BSU is also highly trained to assist in obtaining confessions from suspects in custody. Over five hours on September 23, 2015, the day after the triple slaying, O'Neill put on a master class in police interview techniques as he questions Basil Barutsky, patiently leading the killer to a confession and some insight into the twisted, seething cesspool of Basil Barutsky's dark little mind. The video starts with Detective Sergeant O'Neill and Basil Barutsky entering an interview room where a takeout meal and a coffee from a local Tim Hortons awaits them. O'Neill makes reference to the clothing Barutsky has been given to replace the white Tyvex overalls he'd been clad in earlier as, as the clothes he'd been wearing during the murders had been bagged as evidence. Later on, the shirt he'd been wearing was found to have Carol Culleton's blood on it. Natalie Warmerdam's blood was found on the brim of his hat. Right off the bat, Barutsky's demeanor, answers to the questions posed, and his body language indicate a very angry man, albeit somewhat subdued now due to the current circumstances of police custody. It's clear he's not comfortable with perceived authority of any kind, likes to be the guy in control, and hates that he's not. On a first impression slash likability scale of 1 to 10, Basil Barutsky is a negative 11. I've met skunks with better dispositions. As Basil Barutsky eats, O'Neill asks him questions. Barutsky rants and whines about what he calls malicious mistreatment at the hands of police officers over the years. He's a ball of resentment. During the next five hours, O'Neill massages the killer's ego and asked how people are going to look at him when watching this video of him and how he was acting. Narcissists can't bear knowing someone takes a negative view of them. Eventually, Barutsky broke and told O'Neill what he had done and outlined his movements, admitting to the three killings with a plan to do more. I did cut up some of the audio of Basil's confession for you to hear for yourself. I listened to the whole five hours of this petulant man droning on and on about how no one listened to him and how he was the victim. The people who had died, Carol, Anastasia, and Natalie, were the guilty parties, not him, according to Basil. So after some careful consideration and a brief meditation, I decided to exclude the audio. It's Carol, Anastasia, and Natalie we should be hearing from, not Basil. However, if you insist on watching the entire cringeworthy thing, you can do so via a YouTube link included in the show notes for this episode. After he was charged and being held in police custody, CBC journalist Jillian Findlay reached out to Borotsky and spoke with him over the phone. She asked him right out whether he'd killed the three women and if so, why. Barutsky kept to his story that it was his victim's actions that had led to their deaths. Basil refused a lawyer, opting instead, as has been his pattern, to represent himself. He refused to enter a plea at trial. There were no crimes to answer for, after all, in his mind. At his two-month trial, he offered no defense at all. He simply refused to participate. So to ensure that Basil Barutsky got a fair trial, a defense lawyer was appointed by the court to cross-examine Crown witnesses on Basil's behalf. It took only 14 hours of jury deliberations before Basil Barutsky was convicted. From Global News, quote, Barutsky, 60, was found guilty of first-degree murder in the point-blank shotgun killings of 36-year-old Anastasia Kuzik and 48-year-old Natalie Warmerdam and guilty of a second-degree murder charge in the strangling death of Carol Culleton, 66. 
protesters at a march against intimate partner violence held in the days after Barutsky's conviction noted that that conviction came too late for Barutsky's three victims. We have to do better. On December 6, 2017, Basil Barutsky was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 70 years. Two counts of first-degree murder, 25 years until eligible for parole, and one count of second-degree murder, 20 years until eligible for parole, to be served consecutively. Very rare in Canadian justice. Barutsky will be at least 128 years old before he's even eligible to apply for parole, if the sentence holds. On August 28, 2019, Ontario's Minister of the Solicitor General announced an inquest into the circumstances around the deaths of Carol Culleton, Anastasia Kuzik, and Natalie Warmadam. Their hope is that a good hard look at such a horrific case, like this one, might help them in determining how we can prevent other deaths like those. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 180, Renfrew County Rampage, Carol Culleton, Anastasia Kuzik, and Natalie Warmadon. What are your thoughts on this story, Matthew? I know you've had some experience with people who have been abused in your life, and yeah, I've I've had um a couple different times. So once uh, a friend had called me to say that she just had her husband arrested, mm-hmm. and I went over, and she he in a drunken rage had tried to strangle her. Oh God! And she's with her her kid, and I sat with them. They didn't know if he was coming home that night, so I yeah. ca- I called the police station and. Uh, Found out that it wasn't until like the next night he was going to be home. I offered them to come and stay at my place. Yeah. But they didn't want to. And often that's the case. It's like, well, I don't want to disrupt my life too much. Yeah. And, you know, there's been a few instances of that where I've had people reach out to me and yeah. ask for advice. And another time I just said, you know, it's going to happen again. Yeah. And, you know, there's a honeymoon period. You know this. And I think. Well, yeah. He's stopped for now. Yeah. You know, he's he, he seems contrite. Yeah, but he's it, he's brought me flowers, chocolates, candy, whatever. It happens again. Yeah, if somebody doesn't get deep help, right? Right. Yeah, and I think I think what's um, difficult is you want to dive tackle the victim <laughs> and save them, right? Yeah, like you literally because you can see it, but you can't do that, right? You can't tell you can't tell somebody else what to do because in a, in a way that's taking away their power as well. It's sort of like acting like the abuser in a weird way yeah. of like taking control. Because it's all about removing their agency and yeah. not leaving them with any form of freedom to make a yeah. decision for themselves. And you can't just force these things because only a victim really knows when it's safest to leave, right? Right. And I found that actually being a friend and talking and keep, keeping in touch and talking to them about other stuff and asking for their opinion or help on other things help to because often women are you know the abuser sidelines them and makes them feel um worthless yep and by being a friend and asking for help actually it's this weird thing where they see that there's a life outside of this right oh yeah yep and uh, i think that i think maybe and another thing i realize is it's not you know <laughs> you might have, somebody might have this sort of stereotypical view of the type of woman, right? Right, Like a wallflower, right? Or, or somebody that's like shy or something like that. It's not the case. Like the women that I knew were professional women that had their shit together, Mm -hmm. right? It's, it's any walk of life. It doesn't, it's not sort of socioeconomic, right? Right. And, um, I think, I hope you, in, in your show notes, I think there's so much online resource for what, to do with 
to help a victim. Right. But there's very little on if you think you have a friend or know somebody who's being the abuser. Right. What you should do. Mm -hmm. And to me, heading them off at the pass is (laughs) important, right? Yeah, for sure. So what I'll do before I post the show is I'll go through some... Uh, I'll, I'll do some Google foo and see if I can find some things. I mean, there are programs for people to attend, one of which Basil Barutsky was supposed to be attending. Uh, yeah. and it just so happened to be in the hometown of yeah, one of I his mean, victims. This guy was, you know, he was never going to get there. No. But, you know, I've been, I actually, you know, bumped into or met, you know, I actually had a discussion with one of these guys who was abusing a friend. Yeah. And I kind of did a bit of research mm-hmm. and found the first thing, you, there's like five messages you say to people. The first one is the abuse is wrong. Right, yeah. Right, because if you're silent and they kind of know you know or you know, you know, then they think it's okay. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. The second one is to point out that you're hurting the partner. So often what they do is, oh, it's just a slap or just a push against the wall, right? Right. And it's like, well, no, because any sort of violence is a much bigger deal right. than that. Yep. And it's not acceptable. The third one is to work towards their narcissism, right? Of course, and yeah. Po- sort of speak to them on their level in a way that they are going to understand how it relates to them. There will be consequences of the abuse. So many abusers do this because they can, right? Yep. They only have positive consequences when they do it because that's the maintaining the power and control over their partners. Mm-hmm. They're more likely to stop if they realize there'll be negative consequences down the road for them. And you can point that out. Yep. Um, And one of the negative consequences that a narcissistic abuser really loathes is being reminded that other people are going to think less of them. Yes. When this comes to light, what they have done. Like, like in those, uh, in the interviews. Yeah. 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 So the police officer interviews Basil and he's saying, so what are other people going to think about you when that's the only time he actually gave a shit. Right. And he starts, and that's what starts to break him down when he starts to think, oh wait, there's a consequence for me too, regardless. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And you know, you have to point out that they're responsible for their own actions, right? Because victim blaming, you saw what this dude was doing, right? Uh, He was the, probably the ultimate Victim blamer. Right, so you make it clear that despite what was said or done with the partner, whatever the partner did or said, that the abuse is not the answer right. at all. And it's it's them to change their behavior, not for the, 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 the victim to change her behavior or his behavior. And finally, resources, right? Um, because this guy's like an extreme case, but I'm a believer that maybe some people can be cut off at the path and become better human beings. Right. Right. And if we don't sort of dig in, like it's not just about comps, it's about your friends and your community, right? Mm-hmm. And um, to help vulnerable people like this. So anyway, that's my spiel. Uh, I love it. I know I keep saying this, but we need a jingle for voicemails. Uh, we... <laughs> It's like, just like this awkward, I guess we go do voicemails next. It's voicemail time. It is voicemail time. So we got one voicemail this week and it's from somebody I know really, really well, Michael Brown. (laughs) Oh, let's, let's see what Michael had to say. Oh, hey, it's Mike calling in. I just wanted to let Mike and Matthew know there are no voicemails this week. No. No, so like uh, it's like somebody could have called in, 
left us a voicemail at one eight seven seven. Jeez, I can't even remember what my own phone number is. Matthew's right here laughing at me. Three two seven five seven eight six. So yes, please call, and uh, yeah, just do it like this. Just call us up and have like a real conversation with us, because we're just dudes on the other end of the phone. Really, go shit in your hat. So yeah, that guy again. That guy, what an asshole! <laughs> I don't. I wish he hadn't have called. So so there you go, folks. Like really, please give us a call. We would love to hear from you, and we will play it. Like we have we have played some. We we will play it. We'll play. We'll play your voicemail. We've had some interesting ones lately. Is where I was kind of got yes. going to go. We had one person call us five times and fill up the voicemail. Little bit tipsy, I think yeah. they were. And then another one called drunk, mm. saying that we I should make friends with my old co-host because the show sucks now. Oh, nice. Right. Do you get many calls saying the show sucks now? Nope. Very good. Was it a boy or a girl? Yeah, I think it was a lady. That person did not identify what gender they were. Okay. I'm look at me being sensitive. There you go. All right, next up, it is time for Patreon and of course, the old uh Donut Money donors. And this week, our first patron is Cassandra Phil, and I don't know where Cassandra is from. She's from my second least favorite city in the world. What's that? Lagos, Nigeria. <laughs> Okay, so if Lagos, Nigeria is your second least favorite place in the world, what's yep. your first? Los Angeles. <laughs> Why is Los Angeles your least favorite place in the world? Have you ever been there? Yeah, I love Los Angeles. Oh, it's soulless. Well, that's probably why I like it, because I bring it the soul. I don't mind West Hollywood, but rest of Los Angeles. See, that's the part of Los Angeles I actually yeah, like. Yeah, that's not really Los Angeles. That's West Hollywood. Yeah, I don't like the city of Los Angeles at all. No, and Lagos was, um, I had like guys with machine guns in a truck behind and in front of me uh, in like a little entourage to what get on me What on earth to... were you doing there? Training people on how to sell cigarettes. <laughs> And I needed security detail because people were being kidnapped from my company. So why aren't you writing a book about your exploits around the world as a madman around the world? Yeah, why right? not? You you totally could. I mean, these stories are super interesting. You yeah. should be you should be writing these. And then I was in the hotel, like in the compound, and the electricity went off like every fifteen minutes while I'm trying to present. It was all oh my fun. gosh, yeah, yeah. That does not sound like a really nice place. Yeah. And we're not making fun of Nigeria or Nigerians. No, a lot of great music comes out of Nigeria. Yeah. But Lagos, and they actually have a very vibrant film uh, industry. Very, very yeah, vibrant. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, no, just the city itself is a little bit um, over the top for my liking. I'll put it yeah. that way. Yeah. Well, there you go. So thank you, Cassandra Phil. What does Cassandra do in uh, Lagos? <laughs> is she one of the gunmen that rides in a truck? She trains hyenas. Trains hyenas. Mm. Are there hyenas and hyenas as pets is a thing in in Lagos. What? Yeah, those things are crazy vicious. It, yeah, it's yeah. We look it up. There's some real, some some art. Some photographer did like this series of guys with their hyenas. Whoa, they're amazing photos. Yeah, I bet. Mm. Wow. And so what's uh what's her? Does she have a hyena of her own or? No, she just trains other ones. Oh, okay. Yeah. What's a good name for a hyena? It's 
Steve. <laughs> Probably correct. Thank you, Cassandra. Next up, we have Derek J. Hessian. And I don't know where Derek's from either. Did you say his last name is Hessian? Hessian, yeah. Oh, he's the, the Hessians of um, Northampton. Oh, the Northampton. Oh, the Northampton <laughs> Hessians. Oh, yes. The other day when we were at our garden party with Chip and Buffy, we saw Steve or Derek J. Hessian there. It was amazing. I was so glad he could come. He's a plastic surgeon. Oh, he's a plastic surgeon. Yes, Buffy had her nose done, and I had my pecs done. Have you noticed how plastic surgery has become quite mainstream? Now, now if you mention Botox, yeah. nobody raises an eyebrow. <laughs> because they can't. <laughs> because they're frozen with dead Botox, bo botulinum, whatever, streptococcus. I'm very angry right now. You just can't see it. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> It's like, okay, here's here's our, our actor, and he's had Botox. Uh, show me surprise. Uh, show me anger. Doesn't work. No, there's nothing. Why are you not? Oh. Too funny. Yeah. Style versus substance. Mm -hmm. From Seal Cove, Maine, we have Jennifer Cramp. Jennifer. Gen Jennifer from Seal. I love Maine. Maine is like the Nova Scotia of the United States. Because... It, they are on a similar parallel, and they have similar things like Maine lobsters, Nova Scotia lobsters, and uh, the little houses are cute. And I've never been to Maine or Nova Scotia. Well, you have to go at I some know. point. I know. Nova Scotians, I hear, are, are a bit nasty. Dicks. Yeah, not, not nice people. <laughs> That's not true at all. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I haven't lived there for a long time, so I should probably stop calling myself a Nova Scotian, but... It's like every blue noser always says, like, you, you're always a blue noser. Once blue noser. If you're born there, you're one. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I've lived here longer. But you, you don't have the accent. No. No, I, I never really did have the accent. Not too terribly. Mm -hmm. uh, the one from my hometown, Bridgewater, mm -hmm. sounds like this. It sort of sounds like Maine a little bit. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's got a little more Dutchy, sort of Germanic feel to it. So people will say things like, well, I was out there the other day and I seen this deer and he was coming down there over the field. Deer. And I upped my shotgun and I blew that stinking deer's head right off you. <laughs> I was out jacking. It was the middle of the night. I feel bad for the deer now. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So I called up my dad one time and I spoke like that and he thought, uh, well, he was still a veterinarian at the time. So he thought it was some old farmer from Northfield calling him up to talk about his cattle or Too something. Like that. <laughs> You're good at voices. Uh, I like doing voices. I should do it for a living. Yeah. Why not? Well, you kind of do. Yeah, I know. I'm just, just funny. <laughs> uh, I do want to do cartoon voices at some point. I have an idea to do my own animation uh, and sort of like a little character that tells stories, but I don't know if anybody would watch or listen or... What's, what's the little character's name? I, I'm not telling yet. I'm okay. not ready. It's, it's like a sketch. It's like an artist showing a sketch. Okay. It's still... My idea is not fully baked, but okay. I'm just curious if anybody would listen. Uh, if people comment and say maybe that they would watch, listen to me being goofy and doing i was thinking maybe to do like a whole series of fake Werner herzog 
Yes, and then <laughs> we can talk about kitty cats. And do, can you do the illustration? Do you need somebody to do that for you? I have somebody who will do it okay, for Okay, cool. Yeah, so yeah, I can animate it. I just need somebody to do the initial illustrations. I'll do your publicity. That would be fun. Mm. Yeah. But anyway, I have I have lots of ideas that I just can't do. One idea that I am doing, and I haven't talked about it on this podcast yet, it is called Supernatural Circumstances. So our friend Morgan Knudsen and I are getting together to do uh, at least one season of a show called Supernatural Circumstances. Look at how you just slipped that new show yeah, right exactly. in Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's, it's going to happen probably in the fall. Did, does Morgan know that you're going to announce this already? Sure. Okay. She's announcing it everywhere. <laughs> so, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, we're just, we've been talking about it. We've been bashing it around. We're having, you know, a logo made up. and Don't get any ideas about her replacing me. No, no. No, that's a whole different thing. <laughs> no, you are, you're here. Dark Poutine is its own entity. Entity. And speaking of entities, if you want to learn more about Morgan Knudsen, go to entityseeker.ca. .ca. Look at me in the segues. <laughs> anyway, um, so Jennifer Cramp, Seal Cove, Maine. Did we say what she does for a living? I don't think we did. We did not. She's a music producer. She's a music producer? Yep. So like Rick Rubin kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, she produced the Brand Band 3000 album, uh, Discosis. Okay. Um, what the person who actually did that is probably mad now, but, uh, okay. or did she actually do it? Yeah. Okay. Is that a good album? I don't think I've listened to it. Oh, I love that album. Oh, do you? Yeah. What's it called again? Um, Brand Band Three Grand, says the name of the band, and, uh, Discosis. Discosis. Yeah. So it's, it's dancey. Ain't no party like a Brand Band, brand Party because a Brand Band Party don't stop. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. That sounds fun. Thank you so much, Jennifer Cramp. Thank you for bringing the lovely music to us, Jennifer. And next up, from the UK, our uh, longtime donor, uh, donut money-wise, Irene Briand. She oh. says, for a beverage and a treat for Mike, Matt, Justin, and Steve. Thank you. Thank you, Irene. It's very nice of you. And Where is she from in the UK? Uh, I don't know for sure. Write in and tell us. Matthews, Matthews uh, uh, lived in London for a long time. Yeah, like 20 years. 20 years? Was it that long? Uh, 17 or 18, almost 20 years. And that's where you met hubby? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really want to go to the UK. Like, I want to get to know uh, England. I just want... Ingerland. Ingerland. I mean, there's Brown family in Ireland. Father Brown. Father... No. Not that silly show. <laughs> I like Father Ted. I prefer Father Ted. Father Ted. Have you seen that one? Yes. Yeah. Girls! <laughs> Arse! <laughs> Drink! Too funny. Yeah. Anyway, so thank you, Irene. Yes, write in and let us know where you're from. And here's one from a name that I'm really super glad that she gave us a pronunciation for. Um, it's Megan... Choker, but it's spelled T-J-O-E-L-K-E-R. So she said, it's pronounced like choker. So thank goodness it's pronounced like choker, because if I had to say to yolker, mm. I would sound like a, a boob, even though I just did. So thank you. And she's from Ferndale, Washington, just across the border. Eventually, I'll be able to go and buy some special pops down there, like I, I have 
many times, but since the border's closed, I can't go. Ferndale sounds like a nice place. I picture a dale filled with ferns. It's probably like that. I love ferns. Yeah. I've been to Ferndale. It's nice. Yeah? Yeah. I have another friend who lives there, too. Okay. How far away is it from here? Very close. Yeah? Yeah. Just just across the border, almost literally just just across. Someday he'll be able to go again. Yeah. I just, I like to go to Fred Meyer. I know. What's Fred Meyer? It's just a grocery store chain. And uh, I buy um, diet pops there. Is that like Meyer Thrifty Acres? I don't don't know what you're talking about. Okay. (laughs) I'm lost. Meyer Thrifty Acres. What the heck is that? Grocery store, I think. Thrifty grocery store. Oh, so maybe it's it's like the ghetto version of Fred Meyer. Yeah. Could be. I don't know if I should use the word ghetto either, because that's kind of not nice. Uh, there's all kinds of ghettos. Yeah. Yeah, I don't like that word anymore. I'm not going to use it. Anyway, so thank you to Megan Choker, right across there in Ferndale. We'll come visit at some point when we can get across. I've got my Nexus card. I just have never used it. <laughs> Choker would be a good name for a serial killer. Oh, my gosh. It would be uh, a little on the nose, though. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> His last name was Choker. What did you expect? Exactly. <laughs> oh, dear. Do you have any tangents that you want to travel down today like uh, we did last week? I spent all day yesterday listening to Bjork. Okay. What What would you do that for? Like, I like Bjork, but all day? Well, it was... I was reading a book on utopias. I have this book that talks about different utopias. So, so diff- Iceland is one of them, different, apparently? Different versions of utopia. Okay. And then I remembered her last album was called Utopia, so I started listening uh, to that. Yeah. And have you seen the album cover? She has black hair and she has this big vagina on her forehead. Oh. Yeah, she's that's so not creative. That's the place that they she's usually cool. are. And Steve was like sitting on the bed just hanging with me. I was reading, listening to music with Steve. Well, yeah, that's nice. We spent all day just hanging out. Does Steve like Bjork? If it's not too loud. Oh, does he does he not like loud music? Will he just go away? Sometimes he like if it's if we have the TV like blaring a bit too much. Mm-hmm. Um, we're watching a Guy Ritchie film last night. Yeah, and of course there are lots of gunshots. Yeah, so we had to like turn it down a bit but, for Steve. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. that's cute. So it was kind of a Bjork day, and uh, yeah, just sort of. Re- I just needed a relaxing, do nothing day. Yeah, I think I'm going to take one of those this week. Everybody should if you can. Take a day for you because, uh, I don't know, I think <laughs> we talk about some pretty dark stuff here mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know, some people say, whoa, your voices are very relaxing and they put me to sleep at night and all this kind of stuff and I'm thinking, we're talking about some really nasty stuff. Do, and you, it, do you know what my brother said to me? No. I'm like, have you been listening to the podcast? Yeah. He's like, kind of. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like helping co-host a podcast you're my brother you should listen yeah he's like well i listen to it to go to sleep at night Mm -hmm. and as soon as you start speaking my head goes that's my brother and i wake up so i stop listening (laughs) (laughs) what a dick that's my brother i'm like listen in your truck on the way to work so i help him sleep you wake him up (laughs) yeah well that's really funny i know oh that's matthew talking i should listen to him no that's cute yeah. That's a, that is actually cute he's if like, you think about he's it. He's like, yeah, he's like my head, like I'm asleep and then I hear your voice and then I wake up. So he's like, I can't listen. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Your brother's a nice guy. He's a good guy. 
All right, that is it. Uh, thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it means a lot to us if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available for pre-order on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of our website, check out darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Please take the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Goodbye. Goodbye.